Jumping onto Google, Facebook, or a message board might be the worst thing to do if you get an injury in the gym. What worked for someone else might not be the best approach for you. In today's interview with Doctor of Physical Therapy Will Morris, we talk about common injuries, why they happen, and what to do about them. So stay tuned. You're listening to the Digital Barbell Podcast. Our mission is to provide you with a clear path to health and fitness through education, coaching, and accountability. We are your hosts, Jonathan and Blakely Fletcher, and we are here to serve you. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a five-star review so that we can reach more people. You can find us daily on Instagram and Facebook at Digital Barbell. Now, let's get to today's topic. All right, guys, welcome to episode number 205 of the Digital Barbell Podcast. Thank you for being here. We already talked about last week, it's too late to say Happy New Year. So I'm not going to say that again. I'm excited to get into today's interview with, um, with Will Morris. He's an awesome coach, doctor of physical therapy, a veteran currently serving. Uh, I think you guys are going to get a lot out of this episode. But before we get into that, quick announcement that this is the last two weeks actually less than two weeks Mm -hmm. to take advantage of the offer that we have to get a free month of nutrition coaching with a digital barbell coach. I say that like there's a thousand of them. It's myself and Haley who are the nutrition coaches by signing up for your own custom training program with myself, Blakely, Haley, or Bailey. You're going to get to attack things from both angles. You might even get two coaches for the price of one. I mean, what an amazing experience. (laughs) Someone bugging you all the time. That's right. We're going to be all (laughs) over you. But you're going to get better results with anything you've done in the past. You're going to know exactly what to do. You're going to put your fitness on cruise control because you're not wondering, what the heck am I going to do today? What should I be doing to move myself closer to my goal? So I'll put a link for you. You can apply for that in the show notes. I hope you take advantage of this offer because this is the only time we're offering this deal. So since we uh, talk a lot about injury in this episode, I thought I would kind of just ask you, Blakely, we had an episode completely devoted to this, but tell us about the most significant injury you ever had and how you kind of came back from that. Because I think it might resonate with some people who have had injuries recently and kind of feel depressed. Yeah, I'm really bad with years. I can't remember when this was, but I had a pretty significant back injury to the point where my doctor said I should have surgery tomorrow. Um, I had not like lost, I had numbness in my foot, um, lost function. Like I couldn't lift my foot up, um, severe back pain. And, um, you didn't have through surgery. the grace of God, I texted a friend who is an orthopedic surgeon just to ask his advice. And he said, I can't tell you what to do, but I have heard of people recovering from this without surgery. And I was literally signing the paperwork for the, I was, we were in the doctor's office when I signed this to have surgery the next day. And I said, Nope, I'm out. I'm going to try this. And, um, I, I think recovered. this was 2012 or 13, if okay. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, here we are know, 10 years yeah, later and I, I, I don't have any limitations and I'm stronger today than I was before the injury. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, got here through strength training <laughs> <laughs> Progressive what, overload. What, they, what the doctors would tell you not to do. In fact, one of the doctors I, t- I, I talked to said I should never lift weights again, that I should go back to being a swimmer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we talk in this episode about why that whole take it easy approach. Well, let really me say this work. was not a back. This was not a weightlifting injury. I did yeah. not hurt my, I did hurt myself in the gym. It was not anything to do with like doing CrossFit or anything like any, anything like that. It was nothing to do with what I was doing in the gym. 
you were dem- it was it was like an over yeah i don't know you you were demonstrating i was something demonstrating cold. something cold at 5 15 in the morning and it had been like an accumulation of things that had led to you know something was about to about to about to go about to burst <laughs> <laughs> so it was definitely an acute injury that you felt all at one time yes. but there were some but, kind of warning signs leading up to it yeah um you know little tweaks over the over time that mm-hmm. were probably indicators the, ori- the original injury was actually picking up a baby and twisting with it from mm-hmm. like sitting on the floor, picking up a baby and twisting and standing up. So that's why I'm very, even like uh, anything, like I know I always used to tell girls at my gym, don't like reach for your purse in the back seat and try to like bring it up to the front seat. Like mm-hmm. those are the kind of things where you're like, you're twisted, you're not bracing and you're going to really put this sheer pressure on your back that, you know, yeah. when you're, when you're in the gym and you're doing a deadlift and you're doing a back squat, and you're doing these things and you, and you are in control. Those are not most likely the times when you're going to hurt yourself. And there's been setbacks along the way. It hasn't been a completely, yeah. um, you know, linear progress of, of mm-hmm. healing, but you know, it, it's scary when you have an injury, especially when Definitely. you feel fragile. And I know that it can kind of help it can make people adopt an injured mindset and feel like they're yeah. never going to be capable of things again. I think one of the most significant things I think of is the feeling fragile feeling of like picking up weights off the floor. Like when dumb, I, I used to never want to touch dumbbells. I was just nervous to like pick up dumbbells off the floor cause they're so low. And, um, you know, anytime people would leave them around in the gym, I would be like, can someone pick this up? I'm, I'm not going to grab this. I mean, especially as toward the heavier weights. And now I work out with dumbbells. You were holding a pair of forties today. Yeah. Or I can pick up, up a pair of fifty pair of fifties and I, I just like when every time I do that I, my mind is blown of just like how far I've come and like how thankful I am you know for for this recovery and not being afraid of things because like it's like being able to pick up two fifties and walk around the room with them and, and knowing how to brace myself knowing what I'm doing translates over into real life like this weekend we were just hanging out with you know our nieces and nephews and we're able to swing them around and pick them up and play on the playground with them and do the things that we want to be able to do and not be afraid of it yep so i hope as you listen to this episode you're encouraged by blakely's story and all the things that you're going to pick up from will so without any further ado let's get into today's interview with will morris okay will morris is a dpt and ocs an OG SSC, and he's currently enlisted in the military where he serves as a physical therapist. He's helped hundreds, if not thousands of people get stronger and come back from injuries, including myself. He's been, I've been working with Will for about three months now, helping me get over a shoulder injury and, you know, help me fill out the sleeves of my shirt a little bit better too. So thanks for being here, Will. Of course. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, first off, thank you for your service to our country. Where are you uh, stationed now and where have you served recently? Well, the first thing I would say is whenever somebody says thank you for your service, I always say thank you for paying your taxes. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I, it's, it's always a weird thing whenever people say thank you for your service because like, I'm a volunteer and I get compensated fairly, you know, so it's not <laughs> like it's not that it, I haven't I haven't gotten a raw deal by by uh uh, working for the military. So, yeah. uh, so I, I actually enlisted in 2002. So it was a few months after 9-11. I was in college at the time at Lubbock Christian University. And I remember on 9-11, uh, every, day, every day we had our morning class and then we had chapel. So everybody had to go to the, the chapel on post and we had like a community, computer, uh, community-wide or university-wide uh, session where there's like praise and worship and stuff like that. And then that's, that was their venue for getting information out to the, to the student body. And we had these two big monitors up in the, up in the chapel. And whenever I got there that day, um, they had the news playing and we saw the events of nine 11. 
um, play out. And so I think right at that moment, I knew I was going to enlist. Um, but my mom at the time, uh, she's gone now, but she, she wanted to make sure that I finished my degree. So I went to the recruiter a few days after 9-11 and talked to them. And then they told me what day I could actually enlist because you can delay your entry into service a certain amount of time. And so I went and found out what the, what the earliest day I could, I could leave for basic training and still finish my degree. And so I did that. I left for basic training in uh, July of 2003, just about a month and a half or so after I, after I graduated from college. Mm-hmm. Um, originally I was at Fort Benning. Um, then I went to Fort Bragg for some training and then I left Fort Bragg and then I kind of bounced around. Um, I got picked up for officer candidate school in 2005. Um, so at the time there was a, there was a problem with, officers getting out because after a few years of, of war, officers were finding other opportunities outside of the military, mm-hmm. especially officers. So every major command commander was allowed to select 10 people from their, uh, their command to just go straight to officer candidate school. And I was one of the, the 10 that was selected from the Fort Benning command. Um, since then, um, I've been stationed in Alaska, um, San Antonio, Texas, Hawaii, California, Joint Base Lewis McCord in Washington, Korea, and now currently I'm at Carlisle Barracks in uh, Pennsylvania. And it's not like you're just like a solo dude; you got a family too. Yeah, my my wife has bounced around with me all around the Pacific for the last uh, 15 years or so. <clears throat> Man, I'm sure you got a ton of stories and seen a lot of things. I, I enjoyed following you on uh, Instagram through your time in South Korea. That was kind of an interesting time for you. It felt like. <clears throat> Oh, that was a that was a really interesting time. That was uh, that was some of the more memorable, but maybe not the that my most enjoyable two years in the military. But that was that was interesting. Yes, I don't know if you know this, but um, you actually met Blakely and I briefly in 2017 in Wichita Falls. You were at the uh, the starting strength. What do they call it? A seminar (laughs) convention? I don't know what they call it. Yeah, no, I actually remember that. I remember that. I remember that well. I remember both of you guys well. We always stick out at, a, at like a sore thumb at those kinds of things because like, you know, Blakely owned a CrossFit gym at the time. And like, as you look around the room, there aren't a whole lot of people that look like CrossFitters at a starting strength event. And I think Rip always picked on us for that reason. <laughs> no, but it's also it, it, one of the things that was memorable is that you were a, a husband and wife team. Yeah. And that's something that's kind of unique. You don't see that very often. But yeah, I remember you guys well. Yeah. Those are always good times at that gym. Um, what's a typical day like for you as a PT in the military? Uh, it, d- it depends on where, where you're stationed. Um, like whenever I was in Hawaii, I had my first patient come into the clinic at six o'clock in the morning. And so I would usually get up about three forty-five or four, um, get dressed. It was about a 45 minute commute to the, to the hospital um, I would see patients from six in the morning till about three o'clock in the afternoon. And then luckily the way that the clinic was set up, I could leave by about 1500 every day, but that's when everything in, in Hawaii shuts down at 1500 and everybody just goes and gets stuck in traffic. Um, here, my day is more, I get to the, I get to the clinic at about seven fifteen, seven twenty. every day. I see patients up till about 1630. Um, finish up my notes and stuff like that. And then I'm usually heading out the door at five o'clock. I always have to do a little conversion in my head because a lot of time you reply to my uh, comments and in, in true coach with <laughs> military oh, <okay>. time. <laughs> yeah. So uh, 
it's makes sense. Though. I'm with. I'm with you. I'm with you. So 5 p.m. and and it's right now. This is this will be my last my last position in the military as long as everything goes according to plan. And this is almost 100 percent uh, patient care. So instead of administering a department like I did in Korea or an interdisciplinary department like I did in Korea, this is all just 100 percent patient care. So yeah. it's just after patient after patient after patient until lunch. And then patient after patient until it's time to go home. Well, pretty much all that's time on your feet too, I imagine. No. So, I mean, I've got a, I've got a sitting desk. I, I mean, I walk around a lot because I take a lot of my patients out to the exercise gym and work with them out there and stuff like that. But there's a fair amount of sitting and documenting for some reason, like a phys- if you go to your primary care manager and they write a, a medical documentation um, for that encounter, you probably get about this much text. A physical therapy <laughs> encounter has like this much text. And so if you're just listening time, to this, he, he just, uh, the first one was like an inch long. And then the second one was like three feet long. <laughs> yeah. The documentation for a physical therapy encounter is ridiculous. And it's not like you necessarily have to do all of that stuff, but we have, um, we have monthly peer review. So we have, we have to take a, a random sampling of our documentation from that month and another physical therapist that is of equal qualification um, gets assigned to pull random selections from your stuff. And as this happens, somebody gets a good idea. Well, we need to make sure that we're documenting this and we're documenting this and we're documenting this. So now I've got a 50 minute appointment and, you know, 40 <laughs> minutes of it is just making sure that I hit everything on yeah. peer review and then actually doing a 10, 10, minutes of stuff of actually trying to diagnose yeah. it's but, not it's not at all therabands and five pound weights it's like a lot of computer work and using your brain also yeah it's a lot of like making sure that you're you're documenting everything that the patient is telling you and then using your note to kind of tell a story so that if another provider takes on that case they could refer back to your note and basically see your thought process as you went through the the evaluation so there's a good reason why it's lengthy yeah. it's just sometimes it gets to the point where you spend 90 percent of your time documenting and only 10 percent of your time taking care of the patient i bet that's pretty useful though i mean like you you take a certain rehab path with somebody and it ends up working now you've created a protocol for somebody else to follow or the opposite you try something that doesn't work and you've saved somebody else some time and going down that same road maybe yeah. Um, both, both of those cases happen quite frequently yeah. <laughs> as it happens, you know, it's, and it's interesting because you can take, uh, you can take two people, they have exactly the same diagnosis, exactly the same onset and all that. And you can take them through the exact same rehab protocol or the exact same rehab program. They're going to respond completely different. I would say even some of that's true in the work that I've done with you. You know, we started out kind of headed down one road and we kind of found out quickly that that wasn't working for me and you changed the plan. Yeah, I mean a lot of a lot of stuff plays into that why people don't respond completely the same way every time. But yeah, in your case, I think you coming from more of an endurance and like high intensity interval training background, it kind of changed how we needed how we needed to train you because your your gas tank, so to speak, whenever it came to loading the upper body, is far beyond what most people most people I work with. So that had to factor into it. And so whenever you're developing a, a rehab program, and like you said, with the documentation, some of it is discovery learning. Some of it is you try something and it, mm-hmm. and it doesn't work as much as you, you think it should. So then you start kind of tinkering with things and making some educated decisions along the way to kind of optimize it. 
That's, I think what you just said is really important there because it's easy to get caught up in Googling around like, all right, what's the best thing to do for this? And then somebody thinks that's just what I'm supposed to do. But our friend E.C. Sinkowski is really good about bringing people back to let's measure the outcome of what we do. And that's going to be the thing that tells us if it's working or not. We got to try it, see if it worked. And then that tells us if we're on the right track. I might be demonized for saying this because I know like it's, it's an emotional, it's an emotional crutch for a lot of people, but, but seeking information through the hive mind on community boards on Facebook is is really not necessarily a a good thing to go by because you see it all the time. Somebody has shoulder pain. They go on to like the starting strength uh, Facebook group or they go on to whatever and they say, hey, I'm having some shoulder pain whenever I overhead press. What do you think I should do for it? That's all the information that they gave about it. And you'll see 30 or 40 different responses. There's no uniformity among any of them. There's no analysis on any of them. You got about 20 of those people who have had shoulder pain before that will say, oh, it sounds like you've got a label tear. It sounds like you've got a rotator cuff tear. And then you have the other people that just immediately say, go to the doctor. And then there's no actual good information on there. And whenever you, I mean, whenever you crowdsource information like that, you're going to get crowdsource information. (laughs) Right. Oh man, that's so true. I mean, uh, it's almost like the sign of a good coach is somebody whose first response to a question like that is another question. They know that they don't have enough information yet to even tell somebody what oh, yeah. to do. There's about five more things you need to know before you even start to think of a plan. Yeah, my shoulder hurts. If that was all it took whenever you went to an orthopedic surgeon's office, then an orthopedic surgeon could see 500 patients in a day. You could just you could just wear a name tag that said shoulder pain and they'd walk <laughs> in and say, oh, okay, this is the surgery we're going to do for you. No, every single every single condition and your response to every single condition is going to have certain signs and symptoms. They're going to and there's a whole lot of information you have to you have to get. But I think everybody wants immediate feedback. They want immediate feedback and they want to they want to associate with a, a, a like minded community or or share similar exp- experiences. So you, you almost develop like these little communities of people who have had shoulder pain people who have had knee pain and they all kind of group together on these, on these pages, which is that part of the community is fine, but the seeking your information from there is probably not the best, the best way to go. And you get so much survivorship or survivor bias mixed into that too. Cause regardless of whether your injury is the same as somebody else's, like they know that's the thing that worked for them. So you should probably try it too. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) And then you also see lot of like uh, messianic complex type things like, well, I had neck surgery and I went to the best neurosurgeon in the United States. And it was this person, like how, by any metric, how do you, how do you measure that as being the best neurosurgeon? And, you know, that type of stuff. And I think like that, whenever it comes to rehab, that is actually probably one of the the things that gets, gets in the way of proper rehab for individuals in our community. Most is because you have individuals that have experience, knowledge, and and day-to-day work in that field, and then you have free, immediate feedback by people who who, who are on these boards all the time, mm-hmm. and everybody just kind of, it's like the movement of the Tyrannosaurus <laughs> Rex, like they, their eyes are just drawn to whatever gives them immediate feedback. So instead of soliciting information from a, a well-reputed source that somebody who is known to have experience in that people just go to whatever gets them an answer first. And then they, they start moving in that direction. Yeah. 
It's true. This kind of like a symptom of the thumbnail soundbite culture that we live in. Like we just oh, yeah, want that. Absolutely. And I mean, for you as a for you as a coach, I mean, you probably deal with the same thing too, right? People maybe maybe come onto your website or something, and they they express some interest into what you provide, and without looking at all of the 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 entirety of what you provide, maybe they start they just go online and say, you know, what's the best high intensity interval training program to do, and then they just jump off that way, and. For sure. What will, like you just described a pretty busy day for yourself. When do you find time to train? Because you do a good job of documenting your own training in your Instagram feed. When do you train? Do you just, do you train like when you're not busy? <laughs> um, no, because if I trained whenever I wasn't busy, then I'd probably never train. Exactly. Most, of, most of the time, most of the time, as long as I can, as long as I can manage my, my sleep and I can get to bed at a decent hour or so, normally if I can get to bed by about 10 o'clock, 1030 at night, I'll get up at 415 in the morning and I'll train before I go to work. And so most of the time, that's when I train. Um, I try to keep some of my my heavier days um, for the weekend. So Saturday, Saturday or Sunday are usually my really heavy days. Now, depending on sleep schedule, sometimes I can I can shift my workout to the afternoon um, whenever I get home from work. But that's usually a day that's an accessory lift and maybe like some supplemental exercises or something like that. But to keep myself on program, I really have to maintain that four forty-five, five o'clock training session to make sure I get all of my core lifts in for the week. I hope everybody heard what he just said. The only way for a lot of people to stay consistent enough to make progress and see results is to do it in the morning. And he said four fifteen in the morning, guys. <laughs> Us that are waking up at seven o'clock, eight o'clock, we're like, I just don't have time. There's where the <laughs> time is. It's before the sun and comes I'll up. I'll tell you, like, I will be the I'll be the first to admit, like it sucks. There are days <laughs> oh, yeah. where I absolutely do not want to train. But you know what? I don't think that there's ever been a time that I've gotten up that early, even as much as it's been hard for me to get out of bed, to go down to the basement to train where I finished my training and I was disappointed that I did my training. Like I'm always happy that I did it. And that's the big takeaway right there. You got to have some forethought to know, all right, this is how I'm going to feel after I get down there and do it. I'm going to feel better than if I had not. You have yeah, a freakishly, I, you have a freakishly big bench press. I've always noticed that about you. Um, I don't know how tall or how, how much you weigh, but I always have to like look at the numbers you write down for how much you bench. And I'm like, is that right? Is that even possible? How did you get to be such a big bencher and where's your bench at now? And how can you uh, help our, how can you help our listeners, uh, you know, start to measure up to your, your size bench? So, um, right now, so my heaviest bench press in the last two, two years or so I hit four Oh five right before I left, um, Washington, that was my all time PR, my most current, PR is 385. So I hit 385 about two weeks ago. And so I hit 385. It was pretty slow, but it was still, there was maybe a little bit of room in the tank. So I've dropped back down. I hit 365 this week. I'll hit 375 this upcoming week, go back up to 385. And then the next week I'll go 390, 395. And I'm five foot six. I weigh about 100, 180 pounds on a normal day. Have you always been just a, a strong bencher? No. So whenever I was a freshman in high school and we maxed out on bench press for football, I failed at 25 pounds. <laughs> That's like less than the barbell. 
Yeah. So I had to do a curl bar with five pounds on each side and I still failed on it. So no, I was not. Now I was a, I was a tiny human being as a, as a kid. Um, and so my bench press has gotten better as I've gained body weight because whenever I was 135 pounds, I still, I, I still have a training log from right before I went to Afghanistan. So I was in, I was stationed in Alaska at the time and I wrote down all of my workouts and stuff like that. Now, granted, the type of training I was doing was kind of more aesthetic focused or really it was just there was no focus to the training. That's just what muscle and fitness told me I needed to do. Mm-hmm. If Nate Cutler did this to get ready for the Olympia, like why wouldn't it, why wouldn't it work for me? <laughs> uh, and so I, I wrote down all of my weights and stuff like that. I think at the time my one rep max was about 175 or 185. And I weighed maybe one, 135, 140 whenever I left for Afghanistan. Now, whenever I was in Afghanistan, there's really nothing to do. If you're not on mission, there's nothing to do but work, eat, and work out. <laughs> there's very little time to sleep. And so, I mean, we were lifting, we were lifting twice a day, most days of the week. And you basically just lift until you got injured and then you'd have to take some time. <laughs> um, and I, I left, I left Afghanistan with a 315 bench as a one rep max. Wow. That's fantastic. And, what do you think your body weight was at that time? Uh, I came back. So I left for Afghanistan at probably about 140 and I came back at about one. 165. I gained a lot of weight, but I had never eaten so much in my entire life. We had a 24 hour dining facility where I was stationed. And so you could go in at any time and eat and out of boredom, you would consume more calories than you ever thought possible. Did you know anything about nutrition at the time or were you just eating calories? I I had no idea about, about, about nutrition. All I knew is that I was just hungry all the time and so, um, (laughs) or bored. Yeah. And then also like about that time is whenever I found starting strength. And so it was towards the second half of the deployment, whenever I'd found starting strength and it was, yeah, probably the last third, last half of the deployment, um, myself and the, the little nucleus of people I was working out with started doing the novice linear progression or whatever bastardization we, we came up with that was kind of based on that. And that, that actually sent my lifts skyrocketing because no time had I ever focused deliberately on strength. And so that's, but at that time I had gained quite a bit of weight. And so, and I, I've got short arms, I've got short legs. So if I gain weight, like my leverage has changed very, very quickly. Yeah, that was the first I thing I thought of when you said that. That made, that made me a much better bencher and it made me a much better squatter. So I'm actually a much better squatter than I am a bench presser. I'm a horrible deadlifter for exactly the same reason. <laughs> yeah, you need those long arms for the deadlifts. Yeah, my little Tyrannosaurus Rex arms. Like I'm not, a, I'm not a good deadlifter. I just do you ever to, do you ever mess with sumo? Um, so I'm actually even worse at sumo because <laughs> to be mechanically advantaged for sumo, like you have to have even longer arms. And so for me, like I can't even get into position to sumo deadlift. And so I mean, yeah. I've toyed around with it, but I actually can't even reach the bar. <laughs> it makes sense if you think about it. Yeah, you've got to have long arms to be a good a sumo deadlifter. Yeah, you said you were you would train until you got injured. Um, let's let's get into kind of talking about some injury stuff here. Probably the most common thing yeah. we see with people back even when Blakely owned the gym, and even now is uh, are shoulder injuries and low back injuries. Is that kind of what you see in clinic too, as far as the most common things? So the three most common three most common injuries we see number one is runner's knee pain. 
Number two is low back pain and number three are shoulder injuries. So yeah, as long as, but we have a, we have a demographic that runs frequently. And so runner's knee pain becomes the number one thing that we see. What's interesting is if you go to a deployed environment, that completely changes. So shoulder injuries become, or shoulder pain becomes the number one thing that you see. Low back pain is number two. And then knee pain goes way down the list because overseas, like nobody really runs all that much. So you don't see a lot of runner's knee pain. That's interesting. I think a lot of people don't think about the risk of injury with running such a low barrier to entry to slap on your shoes and hit the pavement. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, a lot of force going through your knee. And if you don't build up over time, man, I'm sure you see people go to running like, you know, from nothing to several miles in a day or, you know, 20, 10, 20 miles a week. And it doesn't take long for a, a chronic injury to creep up. Yeah. I, I can't remember the exact study, but what they looked at was frequency and amount of time running and basically the, the, the synopsis of that study was that people who run more than three times a week for more than 30 minutes at a time or 90 minutes cumulatively throughout the week have like a 93% chance of developing a run-related injury that keeps them out of running for more than two weeks. I mean, so you're, you're almost approaching 100% of people who run three times a week for 30 minutes at a time or more. And I mean, that's, not, that's really not hard to do. Yeah. I bet, uh, you know, a month from now we're, we're putting this out mid January, you know, a lot of people probably started a a workout program or just Googled how to get in shape on January 1st and probably running 30 minutes a day, three times a week is at the top of a lot of people's list. So probably two weeks from now, four weeks from now, you're going to start seeing a lot more of that kind of stuff pop up. Oh, I'm already, I'm already seeing it in the clinic. I'm already seeing it in the clinic and the, the weather has been kind of unseasonably warm here. So people are out running on the pavement a lot earlier than they normally do here. Most of the time, historically at the place that I'm at and with the population that we have, whenever it gets cold, everybody just goes home, jumps on their Peloton and then they develop biking related injuries. But now we're seeing more run related stuff earlier in the year because it's been unseasonably warm. What are some bike-related injuries that you see? It's usually hip and groin pain, honestly. It's hip and groin pain and then thoracic spine pain because people who aren't used to being in a, a biking posture then kind of take up that that yeah. hunched-over posture. And it's just they, they have had no progressive exposure to that, and then they just jump on their Peloton for 60 minutes a day every single day trying to get in shape. And that's just too much, too much load too soon. Yep, that makes sense. Talk about... I think most injuries can be categorized into two different categories, acute and chronic. Talk about the difference between both and kind of the the different approach and how somebody would even know, do I have a chronic injury or is this an acute injury? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the best way to best way to tell is like your acute injuries are typically something that, you know, the exact moment in time that it happens, that, you know, the exact step that you took that sprained that ankle or tore the, your ACL or something like that. Um, things that, you know, you've kind of, we call it insidious onset. So things that kind of creep, creep in over time, there's no definitive mechanism of injury, but like maybe your shoulder's been a little bit sore. It gets a little bit irritable after workouts and that goes along. And then all of a sudden, maybe there's a, there's a a more acute exacerbation of it, or it makes it worse. But uh, instead of saying chronic injuries, I would say acute, and then there would be a loading related injury, Mm -hmm. you know? Acute injuries are, there's too much load put on that, that tissue at one time. It causes an acute failure of the tissue. That's totally different than 
improper loading over time. Because a lot of times um, those will be termed overuse injuries. But I know as a coach that you've seen it, and I see it in a clinic, that a lot of people who have what we historically term an overuse injury, they're not injured because they've overused that that structure. More likely than not, it's a detraining related injury that they've gone too long with no progressive stress on that tissue. And then they try to do something. So it's actually more a result of chronic detraining or chronic degradation of their stress response to that, that type of loading that causes the injury. It's not that they've done too much for too long. It's that they've done too little for too long. And then whenever they, they makes their body less capable of dealing with a stress impulse to that area. And so the way that you, the way that you deal with them is honestly quite similar. You just have to make different, different decisions along the way. The, the first thing that you have to do is that you have to approach it analytically. You have to know what's, what happened, what caused it to happen. If it's an acute injury, like maybe I shouldn't have gotten hit by the bus. That was the, that was the, that was what caused it. Maybe I should have looked both ways before I crossed the road, but then having some, having some information about what structure is injured and then going through a methodical approach of what am I going to do for that in an acute injury? A lot of times you're going to have catastrophic failure of tissue, whether it be bone, ligament, tendon, something like that. And then the first thing that really should happen is determining, is this something that requires medical intervention or not? Um, and that's probably, that's probably beyond the scope of just this talk right here. But once you've, once you've done that, if you're not able to load that particular structure or that, that limb or whatever, you have, you really have to just go through and decide what can I do? What modifications can I make to my normal program to allow me to load everything else as good as possible so that I'm still continuing to train, even though like my left knee, I, I can't squat on it. So what else can I do? And then whenever you do that, you can also take advantage of the crossover effect where if I load my right leg, it's going to cause physiologic change, changes in my left leg. So even if I'm completely unable to load that left leg, by loading that right leg as heavy as I can, I can prevent a lot of the uh, muscle loss and atrophy that comes from not being able to load that limb. Now, in a chronic or a an overuse or a detraining related injury, it's all programming. It's all programming. And so that's where it's probably easier, honestly, to rehab an acute injury than it is a, an overuse chronic or um or detraining injury. In that case, you probably should have somebody because obviously at that point you are not managing your load effectively. And, and I'm not saying this to try to drum up business for either one of us, but just if you look at it analytically, you have not been able to manage your stress appropriately. And it's probably because we are all, we are all emotionally invested in our own training. At least most of us should be right. And so it's very hard to take a look at our own training and pick out what's wrong with our training. It's much easier for somebody who is not emotionally invested in our training to take a look at it and be able to point out, this is, this is where the problem is. You're doing too much. You're not, you're not leveling the stress out throughout the week or something like that for chronic type stuff or under, um, overuse injuries, detraining injuries. Those are the cases that really need to have an educated person start to program for them, or at least take a look at their program and show them where the problems are. 
Yeah. The, uh, it's almost like you're the, I like the way you phrase it about it's a, a detraining injury really. So when you, you've taken some time off or you have a new stimulus to yourself, you jump into this new thing, you kind of outpace your body's ability to recover from what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, everything we talk about with getting stronger, building capacity is really just taking advantage of the stress recovery adaptation cycle. So you've thrown something mm -hmm. off balance in that whole cycle. Well, the whole time that you haven't been, forcing your body to just progressively adapt to this the body goes through stress uh, recovery adaptation both positively and negatively right like look at a professional bodybuilder once they once they've retired from professional bodybuilding what happens to their physique almost immediately they start they start to lose a ton of weight because their body doesn't need for the stresses that they're putting on it their body doesn't need 130 pounds of extra muscle so the body starts stripping that away the same thing happens most of our body tissues adapts to regular stress but whenever you're not putting regular stress on it the body adapts to that as well because we don't need increased muscle mass we don't need increased tendon thickness we don't need increased bone density if we're not doing that stuff so the body wants to bring us down to essentially the lowest metabolic state necessary to maintain homeostasis so all of that tissue is actually degraded over time, which is why we see people who live a mostly sedentary life have far greater uh, risks of osteoarthritis and things like that than even high-end athletes. Mm -hmm. the, the degradation of tissue happens. So then whenever you've gone this long period of time and you haven't positively adapted to stress, you've actually negatively adapted to the lack of stress. So then if you look at how much stress does it take to, to send your body into an alarm phase because of the amount of stress that's put on it, if I've been training for a long time, the amount of stress it takes is a huge amount, right? Yeah. Typically for overuse injuries, it's a whole lot of stress that's given multiple sessions per week, or it's a very frequent stress over time. For someone who hasn't been doing anything, it doesn't take a whole lot of stress at all. So you take someone who hasn't run in 15 years and then they just decide to do a couch to 5k program mm -hmm. that they line, but they want to make up for lost time. So they go out and they run 30 minutes by the second or third time that they've run, they've already developed an overuse injury, which is not really because they've done too much. It's because they've done too little for too long and their body's just not robust enough to take that amount of stress. That's a great point. I remember you brought that up when we uh, first started working together because like my issue was pressing overhead. So we still need to stress that connective tissue as much as we can in a way that doesn't increase pain. So we found movement patterns that, that work, you know, that don't increase pain and we're doing things as similar as we can to the overhead pressing. And what you just described is really the reason that the whole take it easy approach doesn't work. Yes. No, take it easy does not, does not work. And we have, and it's, it's one of the unfortunate things about the medical community. So the medical community is based off of what we term evidence-based practice, evidence-based practice. So in evidence-based practice, there's three pillars of, of information that, that guides clinical decisions. There's the best available evidence. So what does the research, what does the literature say about this particular condition, treatments, and stuff like that, risks of treatments? What is the patient's values? And then what is the clinician experience or clinician um, education or their intuition or whatever? And all of your clinical decisions are supposed to be equal parts 
of all of that. But what you find whenever it comes to musculoskeletal injuries, very few clinicians can manage musculoskeletal injuries appropriately. And the reason why is because most of them don't have the time to either know how to do it effectively because a primary care manager, whether it be a nurse practitioner, a PA, a family medicine doc, or whatever, they have this huge breadth of knowledge that they have to have. They have to know how to be able to recognize and treat STDs, the uh, common colds, upper respiratory infections, how to be able to pick out whenever this back pain is cancer and stuff like that. So they've got this huge breadth of knowledge. We cannot expect them to be experts in how to treat ankle sprains. Then it comes down to clinician experience and patient values. The clinician experience is usually they don't see continuity of care. Most musculoskeletal conditions will resolve themselves within about six weeks to about three months. So somebody comes in, it's not anything that's life-threatening. It's not anything that requires additional investigation. So you know what? Just take it easy for just take it easy for six weeks. And if it's not better, then come back and see me. But also they cannot stress enough how much patient values go into go into even evidence-based care. If a patient comes in and is essentially demanding pain relievers or something like that, they're a lot of times going to get that because our healthcare system is based off of things like patient satisfaction scores mm -hmm. and things like that. And so the family practice doctors and primary care managers have to balance all these things. And the evidence is something that they're not going to be able to, to stay up to date with all the time. And if they do like great on them, but that's why we have referral sources. You can send them to physical therapy. You can send them to orthopedics and stuff like that, because now our scope is much more narrow. And so we can actually be specialty consultative experts in that field. But we have this growing body of evidence that becomes even more conclusive every single year that no, essentially no matter what it is, whether it be back pain, the worst thing you can do for back pain is bed rest. And we have several studies that show that bed rest for back pain is the worst thing that you can really do other than advanced imaging without, um, without a key indication for doing it. <laughs> um, but, but bed rest for back pain was the standard treatment for probably about 40 years. Yeah. Whenever people had severe back pain, they were told to just, they were put on bed rest. Um, ankle sprains. Ankle sprains almost sounds like it would be useful to give somebody six weeks and just let things heal. But the outcomes are far worse. So where we used to have this term or this acronym called RICE, rest, mm -hmm. ice, compression, elevation, and that was the standard for musculoskeletal treatment, that is not the case anymore. Now you could essentially get rid of rice and you could change it to um, P, C, E. And that's protection, compression, and early loading of tissue. And so PCE actually leads to far better, far better outcomes. Now the compression for that is compression tends to make things feel better. So if you have an ankle sprain, if you have you know, a sore bicep or a sore hamstring or something like that, you can put compression on the area and that actually allows them to train at a slightly higher mm -hmm. level, which will 
usually make their outcomes much better. So ice is completely useless for the most part. Rest is completely useless for the most part. And elevation is really not even something that you should factor into that because it's something that we do anyways, but it's not part of the recovery process. It's symptomatic management. Yeah. Man, you just made me think about 300 things that I want to talk about, but I'm never going to remember them all. <laughs> but you brought just, you yeah, in chat anytime you want to. You glossed over something that I think was really important and interesting, and it probably flies in the face of a lot of what people think. I think what I heard you say was one of the worst things that you can do is go get an image of an injury. And you had a little a disclaimer on there, but talk more about whether we should or should not jump to go going to get an MRI on something uh, when we feel something wrong. Okay. So this is, this is again, like you're probably going to see people demonize this thought process, but where some of this comes from is whenever you look at longitudinal studies on back pain, one of the key prognostic factors for somebody developing chronic persistent back pain um, is having imaging. The other thing is that what's the number one the number one prognostic indicator on whether somebody's going to have surgery on their back. Well, number one is, did they get an MRI? Number two is actually what zip code do they live in? So if you live in the, if you live in the Seattle area, that's the highest, the highest density of orthospine surgeons and neurosurgeons in the country. And so guess what? You've got a lot of orthospine surgeons. You've got a lot of uh, neurosurgeons in that area. You'll find somebody that will do surgery on you. But then if you look at the, the success rate of um, back surgeries for something other than trauma or progressive neurologic deficit or something like that, if you just look at back surgeries for pain alleviation, they're, re they're really not that successful. But here's, here's what happens. So the vast majority of injuries do not need a, an image to diagnose it. They need a competent physical exam. And they need a good subjective history by the patient. The patient can tell you what's going on with them nearly 100% of the time. And then your physical exam either supports or goes against what they're telling you. So if somebody tells me like um, that they have, um, let's say that they, they, they feel pain that's going down and going down into their biceps mm -hmm. and they've doing a lot of this particular exercise. And it sounds, sounds very much like this is probably um, proximal biceps tendonitis and everything in the history kind of matches that. But there's a couple of other things on the, on the list. Whenever I start doing the physical exam and I do a speeds test, or I do any of these orthopedic exams, testing the biceps, and I'm not getting anything on that, but I'm, seeing that the supraspinatus is weak on an empty can test or something like that, or that they're a little bit weak in abduction from neutral. Well, one of the referral patterns for supraspinatus pain is across the bicep. So even though they're saying it's coming down the bicep, it's probably more likely that it's just that referral pattern down at the bottom of the biceps from the supraspinatus. So that's where a competent physical exam can differentiate between this and this. Now, an MRI is not going to give you any additional information that is useful in that case. We know that it's not a surgical case because uh, the physical exam shows that there's no overt mechanical dysfunction. There's, there's, not, there's no progressive issue that requires surgical intervention. But whenever you give an image, especially an advanced image, 
It's going to show you all of the anatomical deviations in that area. Now, a lot of times the physical exam could say that the supraspinatus is what's the pain generator, but then you have the, an image and it shows that you have a small labral tear. And so now the PCM who hasn't done the physical exam or a good thorough physical exam will now tell the patient, well, you have a labral tear, I'm going to send you to ortho. But you didn't do a physical exam to confirm that it was a labral tear that was causing that. So now you've, you've, you've now like made the suspect this labral tear that is actually just a clinical incidental finding. It has nothing to do with the actual thing. So, and you've probably seen it a hundred times. I know I see it all the time that people had a surgical procedure. They come to me for rehab and the primary symptoms that led them to have surgery are no better. They're exactly the same. So they've gone through the surgical procedure and now having to go through a rehab process for that surgery and they still have exactly the same symptoms that they had. And, and they've so, opened the door for future surgeries on that area. Yeah. And it's, it's hard for a lot of people to, to understand because as a patient and remember patient values is a big part of medicine. It's a big part of medicine. If you are a patient and you feel that the only way that you are going to be treated appropriately is that you have to have it you have to have diagnostic imaging, you're likely going to get diagnostic imaging and it's going to reduce the, it's going to change your potential for a good outcome. They show that the, the repeated use of advanced imaging leads to worse clinical outcomes. I'm I'm always recommending people to hold off as long as possible on getting any kind of imaging. It's like getting your testosterone checked because you, you know, you feel a little tired one day. (laughs) Yeah, the the whole testosterone thing is really kind of a it, it factors into it factors into this much the same, right? That that becomes the thing that people who obviously do not train hard, they do not train regularly, they don't have their diet in check, their sleep's a mess, but they want to blame it on something that is not their fault. It's it's not their responsibility, and then they go and they have their and you see it on the boards all the time. Somebody goes and gets their testosterone checked and it's 650. And they're like, well, what do you think about getting on testosterone replacement therapy? You're like, there's no clinical indication for it. There's none whatsoever. Like maybe you should make some other life yeah. choices that will benefit your situation. But the reason why you're struggling on your workouts is probably because of all these life choices. Right. And not the fact that you have low testosterone because I, you don't. I prescribe you more sleep. Squats, deadlifts, and more protein in your diet. <laughs> Let's come back in six months and see how you feel. And, you know, and for the the amount that a lot of these places charge for these, you know, for these um, these male medical clinics and stuff like that that specialize in testosterone replacement therapy, like you could probably get a coach and do that for three to six months and see what yeah. that see what that does for you. And then if if that's not working for you, then maybe you can escalate care. But I mean, that's like the the reason why advanced imaging sometimes and a lot of times leads to worse outcomes is because it escalates care unnecessarily mm-hmm. that whenever you do it, you do, you order an image and in our system that I'm as a physical therapist, I'm allowed to diagnose. I'm allowed to make specialty referrals. I can order imaging and stuff like that. So I'm not speaking as someone who has no idea how to do this. Like I do order imaging. I do refer yeah. to specialty providers and stuff like that. But what happens is whenever you order an image, you order a lab test, 
or anything, anything that is abnormal that comes back on those diagnostic tests, you as the clinician, you own that. And you have to make a decision based off of that. And the easiest, most, the safest thing for you to do as a, as a provider, if you see a label tear on an, an MRI report and you're a primary care manager, you do not manage that. You're going to send that to a provider who it's mm-hmm. their job to manage it. So you get this referral, the, the increase in referrals out to specialty providers. Now you go to a specialty provider like a physical therapist. The label tear may not have anything to do with your pain, but that's what you referred to me for. So I'm going to give you three times a week for 12 weeks because I've got to keep my doors open too. Yeah. And I'm going to give you treatment for your label tear. If that makes your symptoms better, great. If it doesn't, it's not my fault. I was yeah. I was treating a label tear. That's fasc- fascinating stuff. Yeah, it's it's. But then that's where you know I'm always always a proponent to patients being advocates for themselves, but being mm-hmm. advocates for themselves to get the best treatment available, not just the terminal treatment, not rushing doctors to send them to surgery or for advanced imaging. And then you also have to be someone who has to be a conscientious consumer of healthcare, like being someone who can meet with your primary care doctor who's assigned to you through your HMO or whatever, and realize that that's not the doctor for you. So you as an active individual, me as an active individual, if I go to my PCM and I say, you know, like I've I've started having some hip pain whenever I squat and he says, whoa, 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 you shouldn't be squatting. Like you just do body weight squats. That's not, that's not the provider for me. I need to ask for a new provider and I need to actually not doctor shop to get the treatment that I want, but I need to, I need to shop around and find a provider that is going to, that is going to meet me where I am and make their clinical decisions based off of evidence-based practice, but also taking into, into account my values. Yeah. So it's just, what does the research say? And what does your experience say? But what are my values? Me being able to lift weights and live an active lifestyle is very much a core part of who I am. That physician, that physical therapist, that orthopedic surgeon needs to know that understand it and respect it and allow the other two pillars of evidence-based practice to factor into that as well. I think that's one of the benefits of some of this healthcare, um, at least the primary care stuff moving online is you get to kind of look through your primary care doctors and choose somebody who does seem to have an alignment with your values too. There's limitations to that for sure, uh, but that's one of the advantages. I want to uh, I want to start to wrap up, but a lot of the things that we've been talking about in the last 15 minutes or so come down to people choosing to have an active role in their treatment, their rehab, and having a more passive role. You know, the person who thinks that I just need to get an image, that's a passive thing that somebody does to you. Somebody who thinks that I just need to get more massages or foam roll more, that's a passive thing you're doing. Or to your... dry needling. Like right. if, if you're the person who you want somebody to do something for you, for most musculoskeletal injuries, that is less effective than an activity-based approach. So what kind of success rates do you see in people who come in with the mindset that there's something I actively need to do for and to myself to get better and somebody who thinks like there's something somebody needs to do to me to make me feel better? There's probably just a handful of people that came in with that mindset over the last nine years of clinical practice that came in with that mindset that actually didn't get better as much as I thought they were going to get better. And I've, I've dealt with, um, childhood 
amputees. I've dealt with polytraumas. I've dealt with, I've dealt with in this incredible array of musculoskeletal conditions from, you know, your minor ankle sprain to someone who got shot five times um, with an AK-47, like in childhood cancer amputation of their leg. Like I've dealt with everything, IED, like polytraumas. But the people who have that type of mindset, there's there's maybe a handful of them in the last like nine years of clinical practice that didn't get better the way that I thought or that they thought they were going to. And they required some additional treatment that was outside of what I could do, but they still got better. They still got better just maybe not as much as I had hoped that they would. Um, the individuals that come in that just want passive treatment, the, the literature is pretty much in keeping with what I think I see in the clinic that only about one quarter to 40% of those people actually ever get any better get any market improvement. Which speaks to just how important mindset is in this whole thing too. We're not even, I'm not even talking about like the, the psychological effects on actual pain, but just, you know, in, in recovering from something like, you know, you have to, Darren Deaton always says you cannot adopt an injured mindset. And somebody who has an injured mindset is somebody who's looking for passive treatment all the time. Yes. And um, that was, that was one of the hardest things to learn as a student, as an intern, and then as a new physical therapist was, you know, you're looking at your batting average with patients that came in and you'd see these patients for, you know, uh, you'd see them, they'd come into the clinic for treatment, follow up, no better, bring them into the clinic again, treatment, no, no improvement. And you'd see these people for three, four, five, six months, and they didn't get any better. And you start realizing that your batting, your batting average is actually really not that good, that people just aren't getting any better. Of course, you've got all these people that do get better and they've got the same diagnosis, but what is it about these people that aren't getting better? And then as you spend more and more years in the clinic, you start to be able to discern that mindset, self-efficacy, um, the belief that they can get better, the desire to actually get better, you start seeing yellow flag behaviors that people maybe with this particular condition are getting a, a, a benefit from that condition that prevents them from wanting to get better. So, mm -hmm. you know, there used to be um, this, this whole list of things in the, the um, DSM-3 that was like compensation um, neurosis, whiplash neurosis, um, stuff like that. But basically what it was is like, you know, you look at people like in a workman's compensation, in a workman's compensation um, setting that people can have a certain diagnosis. And as long as they're getting workman's compensation for it, their outcomes are, are really poor. If somebody has been in a motor vehicle collision and they're pending litigation, their outcomes are poor pending the litigation. Once litigation is over, their outcomes actually become better. And it's not necessarily that people are faking these. They're not faking it. They're, I mean, it's actually organic pain, but the mindset is, is different there. If you're somebody that has a motor vehicle accident, same speed, same type of collision, everything like that, but they actually cannot miss work because they don't have workman's compensation, they don't have insurance, they don't have pending litigation, they have to go back to work, they actually get better much faster. Mm -hmm. And that with uh, the research with whiplash-associated disorder, the number one prognostic indicator for somebody with a diagnosis of whiplash on whether they get back to normal function is how fast they go back to work. Yeah. It kind of like you know, feeds on itself, like shows you, okay, I can work. I should feel better. I do feel better. And it's a cycle. 
Yeah, it's and it's really it's really fascinating, but it's also it's also um, quite frankly it's it's really disheartening because what happens as a clinician, what happens as a coach, is whenever you're working with somebody and you know, like you can't you cannot impart that feeling of self-efficacy and stuff on people. And so you have, you have clients, you have patients that Mm -hmm. come in that, you know, the only thing they really need is they need to believe that they can get better and they have to allow themselves to get better. And you see time and time again, that a lot of people's mindset, they do not, they do not want to change their mindset. They identify with their condition. They identify with their disability. And even though they'll vocalize that they just want to get better, they just want to be able to run again. Uh, whenever you really get down to it, they don't because they don't want to put in the work that will allow them to do that. And There's a difference would, between wanting the outcome and wanting to do the things that lead to the outcome. Yes, exactly. And I mean, that's, it's, it's really, it, it's really sad. And like, this is one of the things that like, I don't think people realize about like clinical care and clinicians. Like a lot of people think that clinicians just don't give a crap about their patients, that we're just there to to get a paycheck and we don't really care if they get better. We're just, we're just there as kind of this like sausage grinder of just getting people and churning them through the system and stuff like that. But I don't know a single provider that I've worked with that does not go home and toil about certain patients all the time. Like this is, this is a weekly thing that you have that one patient that week that you just know, Oh my God, if I could just yeah. get to understand this, and like, I mean, that's why, that's why things like alcoholism and stuff like that is like so big in healthcare fields. It's not because the stress of the job sucks. And like a lot of medical providers are, are stressed a lot, but there's so much in the field that like you see the ill effects of certain, certain patient behaviors and you know that this person could get better, but then you kind of see this descent into darkness with some of these patients that they come in, they're doing okay, but uh, another provider gives them a, a diagnosis with no education on it. You tell them they have degenerative disc disease, and now all of a sudden that person starts walking different, mm-hmm. and then they start acting more disabled. And you know that they're functionally capable of doing more, but there's no incentive for them to get better or no incentive that they see or that they think is is accessible to them. And you, you see this all play out in real time. And this is a really, really hard thing to deal with, especially if you actually care about, you know, your, your, um, your patients. Yeah. And we've talked about it several times on this podcast that, I mean, there are literally nights that I lose sleep thinking about a client that I really want to get the, get the outcome that they want, you know, like what else can I do? And like a lot of it just comes down to accepting the fact that I can motivate, I can coach, I can provide resources, I can provide the plan. But at the end of the day, your patient, my um, client, they have to be the one to lift the weights. They have to be the one to put the food in their mouth. And it's hard. That's just part of the part of being a coach. The community, the community is also not, not entirely helpful either. I did a, um, an interview or maybe it was a lecture with, um, starting strength. And one thing, it just, it, it's very memorable to me. So in this, in this talk that I was given, I was talking about in the physical therapy world that if you own a civilian clinic, you have to have patients in your clinic all the time to keep the doors open. The reimbursement rates are very, very low for physical therapy. So if somebody has been told by their doctor that they're going to authorize um, 12 or let's say 36 visits three times a week for 12 weeks for this, 
you're by God, you're going to, you're going to put that person in the clinic three times a week for 12 weeks and you're going to get your 36 appointments. Now, does that mean that that person's going to improve markedly over that entire time or that it really takes 36 appointments for them to get better? No, but from the business standpoint, you're not doing any harm by bringing them in 36 times, but that's what's, that's what's going to pay your bills and you need all of those, right? But in my system, I have a, a never-ending supply of patients coming through my door and I don't have to worry about funding for my clinic. My clinic is funded by the United States government. So the statement that I made was I don't have to, I don't have to keep patients in my clinic for a long period of time. Like I, there's no incentive for me. I don't get paid extra money or anything like that for bringing somebody in for 12 weeks. And there was one particular comment where somebody called out my, my lack of ethics because I said that I should keep this patient as long as it takes to make sure that they're healed. And it was like, wait a second. Number one, you totally misunderstood what I said. And number two, like there is no ethical, there's no ethical motivation. Um, there's, there, there's no ethical dilemma here that, that I have to hold on to every single patient until they're perfectly healed because it's part of clinical care is that I have to be able to determine when somebody has the potential to get better or not. But it's like that, but that's what, that's what permeates online discussion boards and online communities. If you want to know, if you want to see that the human condition is, is inherently flawed and that people are not inherently good people, just go on to any, any um, comment section of any news story, any YouTube video, <laughs> any Instagram post. Reddit. Yeah. And you just go in there and you just see like, you see just how bad people can be for no reason at all. For it's amazing what some uh, an anonymity will do for people. Oh, absolutely. Or just drive on a on an interstate in California. You'll see that people don't, there's, there's no sense of community. Nobody's looking out for <laughs> their, their fellow man. They're just in it for themselves, you know? Way to bring it down to a downer at the end of the interview, Will. Come on, man. <laughs> Humankind. No, it's, it's, it's just funny. But then the, yeah. but the reason why I said that is because that's what a lot of people will go to that same community to seek their information. And that's then you true. wonder, and then you wonder why people are then looking for a PCM that will just do an image that will send them to a surgeon because they're getting information from the worst people you should get information from because they're actually just it's uh, the, like I, you said earlier, it's the hive mind. I want to know like who spends that much time on the internet commenting on news stories or commenting on Instagram posts or yeah. YouTube videos and stuff like that. Cause I definitely don't have the time to do that. I know you don't have the time. I have to do no it. clue where the people find the time to do this kind of stuff or, or take a quiz to on Facebook to see what kind of artichoke they are or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't have that time. I don't have, <laughs> but what I do, what I do have time for is I do have time for people to contact me, ask me questions, ask for my feedback and stuff like that. You produce a lot of content that's actually really, really good in the, in the fitness world, your content and yours and Blakely's content is some of the best that's around. We're trying, it's, man. We're trying. It's positive. It's useful. It's actionable intelligence. It's, it's really, really, really good content. And people could spend their time consuming content from that, or you could just go to 
a Facebook group page and ask a question and then just deal with the same amount of time listening to 30 or having 30 people respond that are all giving you different answers, none of which is helpful at all. (laughs) It's true, man. Well, um, tell everybody how they can find you on, on the socials or what the best way to reach you is. And I will, um, mention that Blakely and I are talking with Will about a more formal way for you to work with Will through digital barbell that will be available to our clients too, who are trying to work through injury. But in the meantime, tell everybody how they can find you. Yeah. So the way that most people find me is through Instagram. Um, and people like seen my name or heard my name or seen a, a lecture or a podcast or whatever. And so I'm on Instagram. I think that my like little name on Instagram or whatever is just Morris DPT SSC. That sounds right. But then again, like I'm, I'm not big on social media. So like, I think that that's, I think that that's what it is. And then people also email me and my email is william.morris217 at gmail.com. At some point, I'm probably going to make all that stuff like more, more professional. But at this point, like my coaching and stuff like that is a, it's a second career. It's a, it's a hobby of mine. So yeah. I don't have, I haven't put as much into formalizing it into a, a well, professional. I'll, I'll link to all those in the uh, description of this podcast. So people don't have to memorize that. Um, but yeah, I really appreciate your time. It's been great working with you uh, so far. I've enjoying the gains that I've been making and uh, my shoulder feels better uh, because of you. So I'm, I'm thankful for that too. You're a, you're a breath of knowledge. Yeah, and you hit a you hit a PR deadlift, and we're not even really focusing on the deadlift. But somehow, <laughs> you just stumbled across a PR in your deadlift, and you consistency, close- baby. Well, thanks again for your time, man. If anybody uh, has any questions about Will, and you um, just want to reach out to him, go for it. If you need any help from us, you know how to reach Blakely and I at all times, and we will definitely catch you guys next episode. Thank you all for listening. We truly appreciate it. But real quick, before we go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Be sure and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Digital Barbell for all of the latest and greatest free content. If you're interested in working with Blakely and I, we'd love to talk. Apply for coaching with the link in the description of this episode or by visiting digitalbarbell.com. We'd love to talk about helping you reach your goals with a training and nutrition program built just for you. Thanks again and have a great day.